you and take a few moments to pray silently. Ask the Lord to give you ears to hear and eyes to see, and then after you've had a few moments, I'll open this up in a word of prayer. Father, as we have expressed in so many ways uh, this morning, and as we do often when we gather together, that the reward of our salvation is you, as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, our triune God. Life with you in the Son is the joy of our soul, it is all that we could long for and be satisfied in, even beyond what we're capable of understanding here this side of heaven. Fill us with this hope. Clarify to us the promises and Holy Spirit deepen our faith in your word and in the Son. And with that, our hope, and with that, our lives as conformed to the one to whom we will be conformed to the body of your glory one day, our Lord Jesus. And so, strengthen these things in us according to your word, and we pray these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, open up your Bibles again to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And we are well familiar with the overall place of Revelation 7, Uh, Not only in scripture, but in the book of Revelation, namely as a vision uh, given to us, written down for us to consider of the future of the saints. The future of those who have given their life here, but have a better reward uh, in heaven with God in Christ. And, And so we need this, and of course... As we've noted many a times that the Christian faith, and really the faith of God's people throughout the history of the world, not least of which is laid out for us in the book of Hebrews, is a faith of hope. I mean, that's what faith is. Faith is believing and taking into ourselves as real and true and with confidence uh, that which we can't yet touch, see, feel, or hear. It is then to believe the promises of God. It is to take his word as eternal and reliable truth on which we rest our souls, the testimony that he has given to us. And this has always been the strength of God's people. This has always been the strength of God's people. I'll mention some others uh, this morning, but I wanted to give you just one. Some of you are familiar with the Scottish Covenanters. They are a group of believers who, in brief were willing to give their lives and undergo many harsh conditions because they would bow the knee only to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to the king who wanted to be head of the church. They acknowledged that there was but one head. Many stories of heroic faith come down to us uh, of this group and many others, but of this group in particular has taken a special place in the history of the Christian church. One example of this faith is of a guy named John Nisbet. I say a guy, he is our brother who is now with the Lord. He is one with whom we are one in Christ, as the body of Christ. But let me give you, just by way of introduction, uh, one account of this man. 
It says, so, they, so came the day when he and three others met for prayer and business, and as, was, and, and as wrote his son James, it pleased God they were seen, because they used to hide out in places so they would not be caught by the authorities, and they would hide out and worship. Uh, Forty dragoons came upon them, and a fierce fight took place in a byre. Shots all spent with the stocks of their muskets. They fought the soldiers till the commander, ordering the place to be set ablaze. They came out into the open and fought bravely there. The leader of the dragoons, Captain Robert Nisbet, was a relative of Covenanter John Nisbet. And seeing the possibility of a rich prize, he called for taking him alive. John Nisbet had seven severe wounds, and the other three were badly wounded. But they fought on till all of them were beaten to the ground and made prisoners. Redcoat Nisbet, gloating over his captives in front of his relations' face, shot his brave fellow Covenanters, Peter Gamal, George Woodbin, and John Fergusill. Speaking to John Nisbet, the butcher asked what he now thought of himself and his circumstances. Nisbet replied, I think as well of Christ and his cause as ever, and not at all the worse for what I suffer. Only I grieve and think myself at a loss that I am left in time when my three dear brethren are gone to heaven, whom you have wickedly murdered. He was told that he would have a worse death, and he was taken away on his painful journey to Edinburgh, where at his trials he made noble answer for his faith. He told his judges there that he was more afraid to lie than to die, and that he was willing to give his life as they were to take it. Sentence of death being pronounced upon him, he blessed and praised God that he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. He was in prison very cruelly treated, having a load of irons on him of seven stone weight and not able to move much because of his terrible wounds. But all the time he was filled with inexpressible joy and continually witnessed to strong inward assurance and assistance from the Holy Spirit. He testified, It pleased him to give me such real impression of unspeakable glory as without constant and immediate supports from the giver will certainly overwhelm me. This frail tabernacle is not able to hold up under what I now feel. Later he was hanged and he rejoiced in God all the way to the hangman's noose. The point of reading that story, and many like that of course could be added, is only to note this, that it is the reality of what is to come. It is the reality of the blessings that lies ahead. And it is that reality when impressed upon the soul by the Holy Spirit with such clarity and with such certainty that gave God's people the ability to endure unspeakable horrors and unspeakable tragedies. Not only to themselves and the things they suffered, but also in the things that they gave up and the things that they lost, such as family members and even children at times ripped from their hands and killed before their eyes. And all of those things, they counted but light things because of the glory that was in front of them, because of the glory of the one whom they served. And that is the glory that the writer of Hebrews, or the writer of Hebrews, that John, the apostle, the one who has recorded for us this vision given to him by the risen Christ, gives to his church that we might know something of this same hope and this same strength. What I want to do is to read for us this time the entire passage, verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7 down to verse 17, and then we're going to consider this morning, as continue to consider this morning this glorious hope that we have in Christ. Begin with me in verse 9. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And so is the vision and the comfort that God's people hold on to in the face of such sacrifice. Indeed, these who are pictured here are identified as those who come out of the Great Tribulation, a time of unparalleled suffering, not only upon the world, but particularly also upon God's people. Now, we've been focusing these last few weeks, and we will for a couple of more, on the the last part of this vision, which namely is the explanation of the elder who was talking to John and revealing to him who these were that he was observing, worshiping before the throne of God. And we've noticed several things, namely their identity as those in the middle of verse 14 who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it is that condition of these white robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb that is the foundation for all of the blessings that come. And so we've considered so far, one, the necessity of being washed in the blood of Christ in order to stand in the presence of God. We've noted the certainty of those who are washed, the certainty that we have of being before the throne of God and with Christ for all of eternity. We noted as well that the future service of those who belong to Christ is the mark of life in Christ even now, namely spiritual service that our lives are given to him as a holy sacrifice, our reasonable service of worship. And we begin last week then to note also the comforts, the comforts that come from this belonging to Christ and to being before his throne. And we introduced it very briefly last week, the beginning of these comforts, which is found at the end of verse 15, namely that he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. As noted last week, and as you follow this vision, the one sitting upon the throne is the Father, here displaying His grace and compassionate care by spreading, in the language of John, His tabernacle over them. And we noted briefly last week that the noun form of this verb, which is translated here, will spread His tabernacle, refers in the Old Testament to the tabernacle and the temple, primarily and often. It refers to the tabernacle and the temple, which was particularly the place where God's presence uniquely dwelled and where he met with his people. Now, it is possible, 
And many bring this out based on just the lexical connections in the history of the tabernacle to see here as well the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God. To see that here in this tabernacle being spread over them as being the environment of the brightness of the glory of God that is around and surrounding those who are before his throne. This is certainly associated with the tabernacle at each of the key moments, the tabernacle and the temple, when they were inaugurated. So in Exodus, it says this at the end of the chapter, or it says of God's glory with Israel as they were taken out of the wilderness, uh, when he would lead them to uh, eventually the place where he'd give them the instructions for the tabernacle, he began to manifest his presence in this way, his Shekinah glory. It says in Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. In other words, at the very moment of God's deliverance or his redemption of his people, the nation of Israel, as he was leading them out from the nation of bondage, Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, eventually to Mount Sinai, he did so with a visible manifestation of his presence. It was something they could see. It didn't yet, in one sense, dwell among them, but it was something they could see. It was with them, and it was leading them and guiding them. This glory is then located in the tabernacle once its construction is complete. And so we read of this glory in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we have a similar incident with Solomon at the dedication of his temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. So there's clearly here in this idea of God spreading his tabernacle, the idea of the the visible manifestation, the observable glory of God that his people are engulfed in. And so there is a link between the presence of God, the visible manifestation of that uh, presence in the tabernacle and temple, and here God's spreading his tabernacle over them. One may recall the intimacy of this kind of language and action of God. When Moses, before, now after the glory came into the tabernacle in Exodus 40, it says Moses wasn't able to enter. But before that, the tent of the meeting was the place where Moses, as the representative of God to his people, went into the tent of meeting, and it says, met with God face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. So what Moses enjoyed on or on a particular level of intimacy with God as the one who would lead his people out, was representative of the kind of fellowship that God ultimately wanted to have with his people. But here I want to consider this expression in Revelation 7 a bit more closely. He is not saying here, he's not using a noun, as noted, he's using the verb. So he's not saying that God is their tabernacle, as God is a tabernacle, but he says that he will spread his tabernacle over them. And what does this mean? Well, let me suggest to you that there are two key ideas here. One, it speaks of the protection that they now enjoy in the presence of God. The protection that the people of God enjoy here in the presence of God. Uh, Let me illustrate that by pointing you to one other usage. In Revelation chapter 12, he says this in verse 12. And he's speaking here of the wrath that's going to come by the dragon against the people of God, namely Israel. And then he says this in verse 
12. Well, in verse 11, he says, They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. They did not love their life, even when faced with death. And then he says this in verse 12, For this reason, rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them, and woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And here... All of the heavens and its inhabitants are called to rejoice at Satan's destruction, but also to rejoice the saints that are with God because they have been spared from the destruction and the wrath and the suffering that is going to come from the fierce wrath of the devil, of Satan. They are protected from that. They are safe. They are secure in the presence of God. The same idea, if you're there is repeated in Revelation 13.6 in another use of this term in Revelation. It says, speaking of this Antichrist now, this, this one used by Satan to fulfill his diabolical works on earth, it says in verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. And then immediately followed, it was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And so forth. It was given to him, this evil ruler of the Antichrist and his cohort, the false prophet, to wreak devastation upon those who hold to the testimony of Christ. But here, what I want to just point out is those who are tabernacling with God in heaven are protected from such wrath. And so the idea of the scene here in Revelation 7 is that these are free from all harm. They're free from all fear. They're, they are safe in the presence of God. They are safe from anything that would have been a threat to them, a threat to their soul, a threat to their well-being. But again, the dominant idea, even the one that encapsulates that of safety, is the presence of God. The presence of God. Now, interestingly, the only other use of this verb outside of Revelation is found in a passage that we're familiar with in John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. And there are these words John records for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here then God extended his presence in the person of the incarnate Son, who later, Scripture would say, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, who was the presence of God, the one in whom in bodily form the fullness of deity dwelled, the one who could say, speaking to His disciples, that if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And so in this way, it was the Son then who tabernacled among us and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So the period of Christ was a climactic display of God extending His presence, of accomplishing His work, of redeeming His people and drawing them near. But it wasn't the final and ultimate expression of it. That actually is going to come in another significant parallel passage at the end of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Again, words you're familiar with. This is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. So this is immediately following the account of the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of all humanity. And he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne in Revelation 21, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, 
And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And here we do notice one shift in the language. In chapter 7, verse 15, he will spread his tabernacle over them. And in chapter 21, he will dwell among them. And it's most likely here, something that we'll address more specifically in a couple of weeks, that there is an intensifying experience in the unfolding of God's presence. An intensifying experience of the unfolding of God's presence and dwelling among his people who are in his son. In this case, in a new heavens and a new earth in Revelation chapter 21. And just as a footnote here, we'll of course consider this in far more detail when we get there. But when we think of heaven, that, that really ultimately is what we're thinking of. We're not even thinking of the intermediate state. There's much blessing and glory there, but that's kind of nebulous and undefined as wonderful as those realities will be. When we think of what is the ultimate end of our salvation, it is the recreation of the entire universe. It is an absolute removal of any distance or separation that exists between the infinite and transcendent God and his nearness to his people. It is a joining again of heaven and earth in a very real physical creation and very real physical bodies fit forever to be delighted in his presence and serving and glorying in him and all of the wonders that he has in store for us. That's what heaven is. It's a very real place. It's a very physical place. It's a glorious place. But the main point here is to notice that and to see is that there's the joyful realization of God's gracious presence on the other side of their suffering. And it was this reality that was the hope and the anchor of their soul, and it is of all of God's people throughout the ages. I was reminded of a song, it's called Never Cease to Praise, and the words capture this somewhat. And it says, when that day arrives and our race is won, when our griefs give way to deliverance, we will fully know as we're fully known, and all our groans will end as the new song begins. And a multitude from every tribe and tongue wearing robes of white stand before your throne. And our heart will be so consumed by you that we will never cease to praise. Praise will be the only response of our heart, the only possible response. And with no hindrance, with no hesitation in the fullness of our being and standing in his presence. Of him who extends his presence to us in this wonderful language, he will spread his tabernacle over them. He will spread it over us as well. He then goes on to describe this. So this scene of intimacy and rest and blessing is tremendous. And now he's going to unfold. What are the fruits? What are some of the realities of this being spread over by his tabernacle or his spreading his tabernacle over the saints? Well, note first in verse 16 this. That there is rest from the physical suffering. Look at what he says. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. Notice here at first, and whatever he's reminding them that whatever is suffered here physically will be restored in his presence. It, there will be restoration of all that was lost here in terms of comfort and blessing. Now the language here, we're going to come back in a few weeks and look at this more specifically, but the language here reflects and is an echo of God's promise 
to his people when he is going to restore Israel back to a land, a regenerate Israel with the blessings that are going to come with this restoration. He says this in Isaiah 49.10. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. He says, They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. He says in verse 13 of that chapter, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The glorious promise, again, is a reminder of rest and refreshment where there was harshness and suffering, the need to endure unfriendly conditions and difficulties, that one day that's going to come to an end. And it's a picture then of God's compassion, His compassionate promise that God knows the suffering of His people, that God knows the hardships that they are face, that God knows them not merely as a matter of knowledge, but God knows them particularly as a matter of experience in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ who went before us as an example so that He could be a merciful and a sympathetic and a faithful high priest. He is a God who is full of compassion, He knows the suffering of his people, and it is his heart, it is his desire to give relief at the proper time, to bring rest and refreshment, and this is the hope of his people. Listen to this wonderful psalm that was sung by God's people as they made their way up for a great feast to Jerusalem. He said, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is the one who brings rest to his people. He is a refuge. He is a comfort. That rest isn't always known here. Here there is the suffering. Here there is the endurance. Here there is the need for faith. But always faith in the one who knows that suffering, who cares and will bring relief In his proper time. Now what's interesting here is he says they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. And it's very likely here that these particular comforts are comforts that are in direct response to what they were suffering out of their faithfulness to Christ. You'll remember that in the kingdom of the Antichrist that there was a complete control over economics, over the marketplace, over the ability to buy and sell. He says in chapter 13, or verse 16 of chapter 13, he causes the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So there is a time coming in which God's people will suffer hunger. They will suffer lack of physical needs because of the control of the Antichrist. And so there's going to be a time where it comes where faithfulness to Christ is going to mean that his people don't have access to basic needs. 
basic comforts of life. That there is a control exercised by the wicked one that will cut off the faithful to Christ from those things that they need even to survive. It's likely this is reflecting some of the consequences that came from that. Jesus certainly in his sermon or his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 acknowledged that there was going to be great suffering when the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel appeared in the temple. And he said, pray or don't go back into your house to get anything there. In other words, you're going to leave with basically whatever you have on you. He says, pray that it would not be in the winter. Why? Because you're not going to have adequate clothing and warmth to be able to stay warm. Woe to those nursing mothers because they won't have what they need even to care for their children. In other words, there's going to be physical suffering. It's interesting that in Jesus' account given to us by Matthew in Matthew 25, upon his return, it is precisely these needs that are marked or the meeting of these needs uh, by those who were kind to believers, other believers. Uh, Listen to the kind of needs that needed to be met, though, that some had to experience. He says this, and just listen. In Matthew 25, it speaks after the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels, the nations are gathered before him. And what was the mark of those sheep that were evidenced the life of God in them. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In other words, part of the love shown by the church in these tumultuous and terrible times will be the needing of the most basic needs of believers who are put out of their homes, who are cut off from the marketplace, who are in great want and in great need. And no doubt, those who supplied those needs, who are acknowledged by the exalted Christ upon his return, did so at great risk to themselves, did so at the possibility of their own persecution. But we also see in that the care of God for his people, even on earth. For why these suffered, God also made sure that for some as is evidenced by his words there, of commendation, that he also met the needs of many. But here it is to say the ultimate relief is to come, not here in whatever meager needs are met, but in the future when everything is made right. But the overall point here that I want to draw out is that there is a price to pay in following Christ. There is a cost And there is a willingness to set aside the comforts of this world and to endure hardships in hope of something better. Certainly we see that for God's people all throughout the ages. Paul knew that. We're most familiar with the account of what he suffered. Let me just give you one. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed, roughly treated, or homeless. We toil, working with our hands. We are reviled, we bless. We are persecuted, we endure. We are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even to now. But it was something he gladly endured because he had a better hope. He had a future reward. And it's so, many have endured who follow in his steps. And it is the very evidence of life. And it is the very evidence of wisdom 
to give up what is temporary to gain what is eternal. And it's what Jesus calls all of us to. He says in John chapter 12, verse 25, He who loves his life loses it. He who loses his life or hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If you serve me, you must follow me. That's the call to faith. If you'll remember the rich young ruler, as many others, that was a price he wasn't willing to pay. Right? He walked away sad and grieved because it would have cost him his life in this world. But what we have here is the picture of the end. If we were to look at the end of those who choose this world, and we're going to in the end, we, as we go through Revelation, we would see the suffering of lake and fire and torment that goes up day and night forever and ever. But if we see the end who are willing, of those who are willing to obey this command of Christ, then we see this glorious picture of his tabernacle being spread over them. Hunger and thirst are no more. The suffering of the physical world is done. But more important than that, even as we sang in the song, I will walk with my king there in that future kingdom, Jesus goes on to say, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now these are interesting words for us to hear, isn't it? Aren't they? Because we're not really accustomed to sacrifice in our, most of our experience. And there's minor sacrifices, but not, not this kind of thing, and who knows what's coming towards us, but we're not really used to doing without in our American Christianity. We can have some minor discomforts or losses, but we still go get our lattes and have our whatever and sleep in warm beds and um, take warm showers and put on clean clothes and all of the rest. We're not really accustomed to that so much, but the idea here is as we consider these things, we must be willing. I was reminded of a story in a book, uh, Don Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And, and he gave this, this one account. And it was in reference to the sacrifice of one man and his wife uh, to be missionaries in Africa. But it kind of captures this idea. And I'm quoting from Whitney. I read of a missionary in Africa who was asked if he really liked what he was doing. His response was shocking. Do I like this work, he said? No. My wife and I do not like dirt. We have reasonably refined sensibilities. We do not like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse. But is a man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? God pity him if not. Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go, and we go. Love constrains us. That's the heart of faith. And that's the heart of faith that carries us to lose the conveniences here when God would call us to that. To be willing to sacrifice and stand for Christ when God would call us to that. The point is here, however, that whatever is lost in this world will find abundant restoration and refreshment in the world to come. But while he focuses on physical suffering here, there really is a pointer to the greater rest of spiritual of spiritual rest and refreshment. One captures the idea with these words, the deeper meaning of the satisfaction or of, of spiritual hunger and the quenching of spiritual thirst is the force here. The saved will always thirst for God, but that thirst will always be satisfied. And that's what he points us to next. The spiritual refreshment in the presence of Christ. First, there will be a, a restoration. There will be a, a sense of the nearness and the presence 
of God that will fill the soul. There will be a restoration of whatever is lost here by way of physical suffering and hardship out of the faithfulness to following Christ. And there will be for the soul the delights and the inexhaustible riches, spiritual riches. Indeed, the realization of what Paul says, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, will be realized when we're with Christ the Lamb. Let's just introduce it this morning. He says in verse 17, for the Lamb is in the center or in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb in the center of their throne will be their shepherd. And this is the precious imagery. We are, of course, reminded of the Lord's own identification in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd of his people. This idea of being a shepherd was anticipated. One who would come who would be in the Messiah, was pictured in the language of shepherd. In Matthew chapter 2, 6, the prophecy read this way, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We think of Christ. He's given this glorious title, shepherd. Shepherd. Tendered shepherd. Good shepherd. Here he is the lamb in the center of the throne who will be the shepherd of his people who are there. And the striking element of this imagery that we've already been confronted with is that it is the lamb who is the shepherd. Usually the shepherd leads the lambs, the sheep. But here he is the lamb who is also the shepherd. It's striking Imagery here, it points to the marvelous fullness and comprehensiveness of the ministry of Christ to his people. The lamb who cleanses is the shepherd who leads. The lamb who laid down his life is the shepherd who gave his life for his people and gives life. And again, this imagery is, is very rich and beloved and common in God's description of himself to his people. So it's worth just taking a few moments to consider before we come into the table. Let me just remind us of some well-known pictures of this attribute of God, his compassion, his leading care. In Psalm 23, many of us could quote that by heart, David gives these precious words, quoted by many soldiers in the pit, in the heat of war, many prisoners abandoned and lost into some dark and dreary place, Many of those who have been forgotten and suffered for the name of Christ. Remember these precious words. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He meets all of my needs. My soul is satisfied with Him. He takes care of all the necessities of my life and He knows when to provide in abundance and when to give trial. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. When it gets stained and dirty with this world, he is the shepherd who brings me back and restores in me the spiritual delights, the spiritual hopes of trust in him. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in those ways that will bring glory to his name and help my soul to conform to its deepest desires and loves. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the deepest and darkest trials of life, there is the hope of the sheep that the shepherd walks with them. 
I couldn't help but think of that uh, poem. Uh, many of you probably grew up with it on, on your uh, wall. You know what I'm going to say, footsteps. Well, whatever you think of all of that, there is this one beautiful picture at least where the, the person in this poem who's having this dream looks back and sees, you know, there were two, two uh, pairs of footsteps walking. You know this one? In, in the, on the sand, on the beach. And when trials come, he looks back and he, he's with the Lord now and he sees only one, one set of footprints. And he says, well, why, Lord, in, in the times of my greatest need and my greatest trial, why there do I only see one? Why did you abandon me when I need you most? And you remember the Lord's reply. He's, oh, my child. He says, no, that was when I carried you through those times. And that's the idea here. It is a beautiful picture. I will feel no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even your discipline, even your corrective ways to me are a comfort to my soul as my shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Your kindness to me, your compassion to me will never leave. One put it this way, at the, capturing the idea of the last uh, part of the psalm, Alexander McLaren. He says, this should be at once the crown of all of our hopes of the future and the one great lesson taught to us by all the vicissitudes of life, the sorrow and the joys, the journeying and the reset, the temporary repose and the frequent struggles, all these should make us sure that there is an end which will interpret them all, to which they all point, for which they all prepare. We get the table in the wilderness here. It is when, as when the son of some great king comes back from foreign soil to his father's dominions and is welcomed at every stage in his journey to the capital with pomp of festival and messengers from the throne until at last he entered his palace home where the travel-stained robe is laid aside and he sits down with his father at his table. And that's a picture of God's shepherding love. He shepherds us through life. He shepherds us all the way to his throne. He is the great shepherd who does not abandon his own when men abandon them. Let me just mention it to you. In Ezekiel 34, he rebukes the faithless shepherds because they did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not tend to the flock. And here he's rebuking the priest who failed to give shepherding and spiritual care to the people of Israel. And so they were led astray to all the vain idols and the sin that would bring the judgment of God. And God rebukes them and he says, but where you are unfaithful shepherds, where you look out for your own interest, where you have no concern for the sheep, he says, I am the faithful shepherd. I am the one who truly loves my sheep. I am the one who will care for them. He says, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them to the countries. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing around will be on the mountains of the heights of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and bring them back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy and feed them with judgment. He says, but I will care for them. He says later, I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be prey. And I will judge between, sheep, uh, between one sheep and another. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be their prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
glorious picture of his covenant faithfulness. Where men fail, God does not fail. Though my father and mother may forsake me, God will never forsake his own. Though there is the selfish desires of faithless shepherd, there is the selfless accomplishments of a gracious God to shepherd his people. And ultimately, pointing to the shepherd who would come, the one who would be in the line of David. This spoken many years, of course, after David had already died. But the promise is that one like David, from David, in fulfillment of the promise to David, would come and shepherd his people. And that's this glorious picture of Christ as our shepherd then in many places, but in John chapter 10. And here he says, My sheep follow him because they know his voice. He protects them from error. He protects them from wolves who come only to kill and to destroy Thieves who want only to take, but he is the shepherd who came to give for his people, came to give his life. He said, the key thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He does not take from his sheep. He does not come to destroy his sheep. He comes to give life because they are his He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Did you hear what he just said? We'll talk about this more next week. There is an intimacy here. He is the shepherd who came to bring his people into his own intimate relationship with the Father. Such that in him, his sheep would know the love of the Father and his love from the Father as they are bound to the life of the Son who came to make them his own. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And he goes on. The point here is he is our gracious shepherd He is a shepherd who has come for his own. He is a shepherd who has gone before us to give us hope. Just one more passage here quickly. He says, Therefore we have so great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. He says, Let us run the race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is later described this way at the end of that great epistle. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So he is the shepherd who cares for us in life. He is the shepherd who never leaves us. He is the shepherd who sticks closer than a brother. He is a shepherd who protects us from error. He is a shepherd who protects our soul from all that would destroy it. He is the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. He is the shepherd who brings us into his own intimate relationship with his father. He is the shepherd who cares for us in life and in death and will be for all eternity. He is the great shepherd of our souls, as Peter calls him in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to give you just one other account here. And and this we're going to lead into the table. Uh, but it is this imagery of Christ as a shepherd uh, that was given to one of the famous martyrs in the history of the church. 
It's, her, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particular image of a shepherd. Um, if you, and, I, and I give this one because we briefly mentioned it last week in our study of uh, Christian history. Uh, what was noted last week in that discussion is God often, for, for some of the, many of the martyrs, gave them a particular what could be called a martyr's grace, uh, a vision of their reward that would enable them to endure the sufferings that he called them to, much like we saw in John Nisbet. Here's one. Her name is Perpetuia, Perpetuia. And she was a famous martyr that comes down. Her account is uh, recorded for us to consider. And she's giving an explanation uh, of a vision that was given to her in what, the account that I'm going to read. It's a vision of an ex- uh, that she's explaining, a vision that was giving, given to her to prepare her for what was to come as others were trying to get her to try to avoid the suffering. She gives this account. I, I saw a bronze ladder of astonishing height reaching all the way into heaven. It was so narrow that only one person could ascend it at a time. To the sides of this ladder, all kinds of iron weapons were attached. There were swords and spears and hooks and curved daggers and darts. If people tried to climb without paying attention or looking upward, they would be gouged or snag their flesh on the blades. At the foot of the ladder crouched a dragon of enormous size. It was ensnaring those who tried to climb, or frightening them so that they would not dare ascend. Saturus was the first to go up. Arriving at the top of the ladder, Saturus turned around and said to me, I am waiting for you, Perpetua. Just make sure the dragon doesn't bite you. He will not hurt me, I replied, in the name of Jesus Christ. From underneath the ladder, the dragon slowly stuck out its head and used it as my first step as I ascended the ladder. I discovered an expansive garden, in the middle of which sat a white-haired old man in shepherd's garments. He was a tall man and was milking sheep, and all around him were many thousands of people in white robes. Raising his head and looking straight at me, the shepherd said, You are welcome here, my child. The man called me over and gave me a mouthful or so of the curd he was making from the milk. I took it into my cupped hands and I ate it. And everyone standing around said, Amen. And at the sound of hither voices, I woke up, still tasting sweetness I cannot describe. Immediately, I recounted this to my brother. And we realized that there would be a martyrdom. And from then on, we no longer placed any hope in this world. And then, after being trying to be persuaded by her father to recant and to turn away what was coming, she held steadfast and went into the arena with some of her companions and died a most gruesome death. But she said, for her, she felt no pain, no, no sense of regret, because she had seen the great shepherd of her soul that she was soon to meet once her death had come. So in short, this world, we must let go in our following of Christ. And while we do not... And neither did she have that grace necessarily throughout life that she had at the end. God sustained her with a faith consistent to what she had demonstrated before to walk obediently and trustingly with her Savior and her Shepherd. And may we look to this same hope and this same reward and long to hear the words as did she and many others. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. And it is that joy that we anticipate when we come to the table. So let's pray and prepare our hearts to meet with him who has come to us and given us life, who's committed himself to us as the lover of our souls, the shepherd of us as his sheep.